Well, hello everyone. Welcome. Good day to each and every one of you, wherever you are. And I, we can only wish that you are in good health and good peace of mind. Okay. No matter what's going on, let's keep it that way or else it will be hard for us to continue. So anyway, um, uh, we, the, everything seemed to be so overwhelming and each and every one of us can feel that it seems like everything is endless, but, uh, Today would be a perfect day and a perfect episode that it we can all be educated again, informed and inspired and empowered because that's what matters is what we do after we hear this information and what you can do to your personal life and to, and to your community life. And I am so excited and happy to have Matthew Errett from Montreal, Canada. And he is a prolific author. He is an artist, a journalist, a husband, a um, just a, a, and I believe David Steele called him. He's an strategist. And um, God bless you for having a conversation with David Steele just be last year. So he is also a. Um, uh, he created and he's an editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review. And I believe this came out of his one of his aha moment awakening in uh, 2011. And with his lovely wife and he, they created the Rising Tide Foundation, which is focused on education. And of course, as a, a prolific writer, he has written so many articles, scientific articles, and his two books are The Untold History of Canada and The Clash of the Two Americas. And I, I wanted to invite him, other than him uh, watching him and listening to him at the, his powerful presentation at the grand jury that's going on, but because also many times we think what's happening in one country or one particular family or one issue is not connected or separate. But we all know that other than the fake pandemic, which it's really a pandemic, and whether it's a pandemic of virus, I would rather call it as a pandemic of PCRT, pandemic of everything fearful. And then we have that, I wanted him to, my intention is to be able for him to show us that what we see up front, what we feel up front is nothing as compared to what's really been going on for, for decades, for eons, and some of you before you were born, and of course, me too, okay, for some of us. So um, we'll, we'll let Matthew and with our other conversation, and I'm happy that Roy, from um, Roy from Awakening Podcast and also Hartmut from Go Your Own Path could join us. So um, Matthew, tell us more on what happened. Why, why is it important for you to create the Canadian Patriot Review? Why is it important to you to read about, write about the untold history of of Canada. Then you came out with the book of the Clash of the Two Americas, which confused many, maybe people. But so lead us. Yeah, well, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to your esteemed platform and also for that wonderful introduction. Um, from my experience, um, having sort of gone through my own 
per, I mean, we all have our own pathway to awaken to the possibly you could say unfortunate, but I would say fortunate uh, reality that most of what our fellow citizens, our loved ones, our friends, uh, and ourselves had believed to be the truth is a complete illusion. Uh, when you realize that there are these higher forces of history moving society in a certain direction, um, which is not necessarily a good direction. And, and my process began in 2003. So I'll just say a little something about myself um, <clears throat> as a point of connection to the audience. Um, when I was doing a, a documentary for a school project in university on uh, that forced me to start looking at 9-11 with a slightly more critical eye. Obviously, you know, when you start just observing some of the basic facts uh, that were available, I quickly discovered that the official narrative was bunk. And uh, that put me on a completely different path where many people will encounter some of the, this material. There's a lot of documentaries out there. There's a lot of material over the years. And they, not knowing what to do with it, will tend to then sort of compartmentalize their world and, and simply say, okay, well, that's too much for me to think about. I'll just put that into the, uh, the maybe box and maybe deal with it in the future or ignore it. I couldn't do that. It, it, it kind of got to me and uh, it sort of really changed my overall identity and how I was thinking. So I, I began an obsessive bit of research for a couple of years and I vowed at a certain point not to talk about politics with anybody because everything I was I was saying to anybody I could get in touch with um, was depressing the hell out of them. Or at best, if I was able to persuade them that there were uh, conspiracies run by financial, you know, sociopathic bankers over many generations, if I was successful, um, it would really just disempower people. So I was like, well, rather than just pass on bad energy, um, maybe ignorance really is bliss, perhaps, you know, and I, I just vowed I until I could come up with some empowering way of thinking about this, I was going to keep my mouth shut, which I did for about a year. And uh, then finally, I encountered uh, certain activists, different organizations, especially uh, affiliated with the, the the late, recently deceased American economist, Lyndon LaRouche, who had a, there was a small little uh, branch of his organization in Montreal, which I began talking to and just looking at, at what type of ideas they had, they had been putting out. And I liked a lot of the overall uh, assessment of things, why we came into this crisis, why we can know we're going into an economic meltdown that was orchestrated, why uh certain policies can uh function it was it was it satisfied my reason to understand that there was a blueprint to get out of the fire um and in principle i i was like okay i can i can get behind that um i didn't agree with everything but overall it made sense and i could i, I began really putting myself into an activist orientation but the problem is i'm in canada so i did this for a few years and there's a difficulty communicating with canadians when it's an you know it's an organization that was primarily based in the United States, it had out, out branches in Europe, but there was no ability to really get people behind a policy uh, of action. Like, so what do we do? You know, and uh, it's like, oh, we can you know impeach Barack Obama from Canada. It doesn't make any sense. So I, you know, myself and a few associates, we decided to try to figure out. We put our, we created a Canadian history project to try to make sense of well, what are the dynamics of Canada? Why do we have a monarchy? Why do we have a privy council? Why is our head of state a governor general? What is really the connection between a lot of the events in the United States, like the assassination of John F. Kennedy or the assassination of Lincoln? Why didn't Canada even join the uh, the rebellion of the thirteen colonies when Benjamin Franklin was up here? We have a museum down close to where I live, which is where Benjamin Franklin stayed for five weeks before the Declaration of Independence. Um, 
why did we fail to accept his offer to go down and become the 14th colony of Quebec? Uh, there was all of these mysteries that had to be solved. So uh, over the course of several years of, of rigorous research, we pulled together a picture that sort of unified things in a, in a coherent way. Um, and coming out of that in 2011, um, I began uh, an online geopolitical journal with a focus on history called the Canadian Patriot Review to sort of just showcase in one setting a lot of this research. And with that, we were able to then provide um, battle plans um, for action. So what sort of things we could do to move Canada into recapturing the Bank of Canada as a national bank. Um, that could emit credit outside of the private financiers that had controlled our uh, banking system for a long time? Or what about geopolitically, how we could work with uh, Eurasian countries that do not want to be sacrificed on an altar of depopulation um, around big projects that that pull people out into higher states of awareness and out of poverty? So there were things like that that opened up um, and uh, that manifested more recently, uh, you know, when I, I began an independent process for myself around 2016, 17. And uh, as a writer and a, and a lecturer, and, and I turned a lot of that research into a, a book series, as you mentioned, The Untold History of Canada. Um, coming out of that as well, once I had a better sense of the deep state structures of Canada that have always been there since 1774 and even before, um, it involved understanding how that related to the exact same deep state structures of the United States. So things like the Roundtable Movement, without understanding you know, many people don't even know what the Oxford Rhodes Milner Roundtable group is, uh, which was set up as a sort of think tank, a, a, a way to reorganize a, um, a reconstituted British Empire at the end of the 19th century when the British Empire was very weak and losing control of its more independently minded uh, colonies. Um, they reconstituted themselves around a few think tanks. One of the biggest ones was this roundtable group using the money of... Cecil Rhodes, a racist, virulent imperialist. Uh, I mean, I could say so many bad things about him, uh, <laughs> but he ran a, a big area of South Africa and Zimbabwe, what is today Zimbabwe called Rhodesia. He created things like De Beers, major mining operations. The South African Royal Africa Company um, was created. And using the the revenue he got by destroying Africa, really, and 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 raping the continent, that money became a pool that was then added to by certain uh, figures within the British establishment, um, like Nathaniel Rothschild, uh, a few others, who then used it to create a new indoctrination mechanism called Rhodes Scholarships. And those Rhodes Scholarships would, would talent search young elites from different parts of the, the colonies. Increasingly, they, they allowed darker skinned uh, people from Africa or or Asia to also have the benefit of an Oxford indoctrination and then be redeployed back to their home countries to advance a one world government post nation state agenda. Um, always each generation helping to facilitate the rise within the private sector, civil service, uh, military, everything of the previous generation or the next. So without understanding that, it's impossible to understand anything about Canada's history. That, that is a driving force, including the, 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 um, what's called the think tank called the Round Table or what later became Chatham House. So that, that grouping around Lord Milner and his uh, sociopathic young boys like Philip Kerr, Lord Lothian, uh, uh, Lord Halifax, there's many of them. 
um, that sort of got there. They, they became men working with Lord Milner and Lord Kitchener in South Africa, suppressing the, the, uh, the Transvaal Republic Dutch up, uprising, with, which had worked with the Zulus. And they've just created, you know, such innovative ideas as concentration camps uh, for targeting women and children, you know, um, and poisoning drinking water systems, like real sociopathic freaks. But these guys all became the young elite who would manage the round table, they created the Chatham House uh, Institute in, in uh, 1919. They had a branch set up in the United States called the Council on Foreign Relations in 1921 to again advance this League of Nations, post-nation state uh, structure of governance. They've always wanted to get rid of nation states. That's clear from the ideologically because nation states, you know, were created by human beings to defend ourselves from them. <laughs> um, and then, so what I'm really hearing from you, Matthew, is that mm -hmm. it's really crucial to know history and each oh, yeah. country has their own history. And to make it in a smaller um, environment or like bring it down to a microcosm level, it's just like when you have uh, when you're ill, if you want to get better, you, if you're not feeling well, you have to kind of go down to what made you sick. And then, yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's a, that's the same thing as now in a macro level. So, and so Canada was never really been independent from before, from way before. And I say that because that's how I feel about the Philippines. We may have like our independence day, but while we were, while the, our, our, our heroes were fighting for our independence, at the same time, we were being sold also in another part of the world. So I guess for, for, for people listening and looking at what's happening in their own countries, it is crucial to connect the dots and to listen to like, you know, what people like Matthew and other authors who have, who have written these things. So from what you know, Matthew, in what's happening with the, with, with the, uh, convoy with the truckers, and that's why it's also important. Were you surprised on how this really be, were, they were able to organize, and and then that whole world really just embraced it and kind of like inspired? Were you surprised, or you know, did you see it coming? I, I did not see it coming, and I was surprised, and I did not think that Canadians <clears throat> in the British. Uh, British colony that is mostly Canada had it within them culturally to to organize uh, themselves towards um, the, what we've seen, right? And you know, people have written to me saying, "But don't you know there were there were Anglo-Canadian intelligence operations embedded within it?" And uh, you know, they've they've named certain figures um, who had controlled a lot of the money in the GoFundMe accounts, who were tied to the Obama networks, and uh, even people around Trudeau. Yes, I'm aware of that. I'm a, I'm perfectly aware that there are intelligence operations, as there always are and will be, um, whenever you have uh, freedom movements. And naturally, that that is what you should expect to see. However, um, is that the defining character, or is it not? And by me, I mean I had to go there personally because I wasn't sure. I, I had to see with my own eyes, and I and I spent a full day there. I've been following it very closely, um, every every step of the way. And no, it was by and large like nothing I had ever seen. It had it was defined by love, by peace, by people of all faiths and ages and colors, and um, and it was a joyous, uh, celebratory process. Which I think it was only a matter of time before the sociopathic uh, 
technocrats managing the Canadian government under certain, you know, Davos crowd, you know, freaks like Christia Freeland, who's sort of the the, the controller or the handler of, of Justin, uh, herself is a, being a World Economic Forum trustee, um, as is, I think, over, Klaus Schwab celebrates that over half of the Canadian uh, cabinet happens to have gone through their Young Leaders uh, Forum, including the head of the NDP, who's a, a, an affiliate with the World Economic Forum. It was only a matter of time before they would try to clap down this thing because they could not obviously deal with the protesters demanding their basic freedoms be uh, recognized as human beings. They couldn't talk to them. So uh, they chose to go for the path of an emergency act that uh, gave them um, absolute power to freeze bank accounts, to give police authorization, including police from other provinces and maybe even police affiliated for or um, enforcers affiliated from uh, other outside of Canada organizations. That remains to be seen. Um, the details haven't been pulled together for me, at least. But all that to say, they went for violence. They shut down the geographical location of the, the convoy in the center of Ottawa. They utilized certain excuses like the blockades on the Windsor Bridge, which is a major trade corridor between Canada and the USA, which from all people who I've spoken to who live and were covering that region, um, that was a false flag. That was not ever connected to the Ottawa Freedom Convoy. That was two different operations. And there were never many people in the first place in the Windsor area justifying the, the, the blockade. There was no real blockade in that sense. It was artificially created um, to then ju justify this. Now, in the same way, I think they pushed a little bit too hard because now, uh, as of yesterday, it, there was an announcement that they would finally repeal the uh, emergency measures, unfreeze bank accounts, let people that have been unjustly imprisoned uh, go free. And I think that partially had to do with some senators that I had heard who stood up because it was never fully uh, ratified, right? It was passed unfortunately in the parliament in the, the house of commons under a vote um by a vote of 150 to 180 or so however it was not passed in the senate which it has to do to become made sort of legal in in the in the legalistic term and uh some senators made a very good point that the justification of these emergency measures couldn't be justified because it, it's using they were canadian intelligence were using in, secret information that they couldn't give to anybody expected to vote upon it, which many senators were like, we're not comfortable voting on something we don't even have the information about, and we're not allowed to have because we're not inducted into the Privy Council and have taken our oaths of secrecy uh, uh, oaths. So they made a big stink that that was brought to the surface. You also had uh, many of the banks who recognized that there was a bank run I mean, I know a lot of people who pulled all of their money out of the banks as soon as they discovered that the banks have absolute jurisdiction outside of the law to confiscate and freeze indefinitely accounts, insurance companies too. So that was inducing a massive bank run. And I don't think uh, the, the, the ground was ripe uh, for allowing that type of uh, massive deleveraging of the global system. Because if, if you can get a blowout, a, a, a deleveraging in Canada, that has all sorts of nonlinear effects across the global speculative banking system, including the, the derivatives, which are the real time bomb built into the system that account for over a, tr a quadrillion dollars of fake assets are just these fictitious derivatives, insurance on debts that are securitized and then gambled upon that have no value because the debts themselves are not payable. Uh, that will all disappear in hyperinflationary smoke. So you could get a point, there's various triggers that could blow that out. And Canada was a big one. So they pulled it back. 
Maybe also, I partially, I'd, I'd like to think that they were trying to frame the idea that Russia and China are the big evil authoritarian bad guys in the world. That's been the narrative for the past, you know, couple of years. And it looks kind of bad when you're doing that, trying to virtue signal uh, Eurasian bad guys. And yet you are suppressing your own people in an authoritarian way, trying to pass yourself off as a, as a liberal democracy. That looks pretty bad, especially with what's going on in Ukraine, which has just really taken, gone to the next level. Um, so all of this stuff conflated, you know, and, and, but I think overall, I was surprised to get back to your question and the fact that it is now becoming increasingly recognized as a broader movement, not geographically localized to Ottawa, but rather something that is happening still all across Canada. We're seeing the freedom convoy now uh, in a parallel sense, leaving from Southern California to arrive in Washington, DC shortly. Um, obviously there's dangers of, of all sorts of FBI and other intelligence operations that could, that are trying, that would like to turn this violent so that that would justify a greater, uh, governmental clampdown. Um, so hopefully people's, uh, radar is up and, uh, but so far it's a very organic and natural process that I'm seeing, which you should expect to see in a time of, of authoritarian, uh, crisis as, as we're going through. Well, thank you for that update, Matthew. And since you mentioned about um, most people blaming it or just looking at the culprit or the root of the cause in China and Russia, could you connect that then to the um, downfall of the the wish for the downfall of capitalism and then the rise of technocracy? Yeah. And well, I'll pass on that after that. I'll let Roy will take it over. Well, one of the the co-founders of the World Economic Forum, and also I would say a, a founding father of the uh, Green New Deal, as, as it is known today, was a figure from Canada named Maurice Strong. Um, he, uh, Klaus Schwab called him his mentor. Um, and uh, Maurice Strong uh, said it very clearly in 1991 in, a, in an interview um, that, and he was describing um the the uh, a meeting at davos where the world the those who tr who are trying to uh um shape the the new world order were describing the need for inducing industrial civilization to collapse to save nature to save the environment and the big question was would the leaders popularly elected of nation states agree to go along with this plan for the greater good and the uh, the realization was that the leaders of the world would not do that. And so, um, Maurice Strong, said, you know, described in this fictitious book he wanted to write how the only solution then would be to enforce this collapse to happen um, to save nature from humanity. And when you look, you know, he justified it saying that, no, no, it was a fiction book I was entertaining. I wasn't really serious. But it's like, if you look at everything that this person and the institutions that he created and participated in his entire adult life, what were the effects of what they were doing? It, it was exactly that. And so the, the transformation of capitalism, which, I mean, I recently wrote an article called How Capitalism Became a Time Bomb. Um, this was a, there was a major coup in 1971 after the death of, of several major leaders and coup d'etats, um, including uh, Bobby Kennedy, also Martin Luther King, the ouster of Charles de Gaulle, who had survived 30 assassination attempts already, and many others in the 60s. And this coup d'etat in 71 occurred under the, uh, the, 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 you know, the personage of Henry Kissinger, 
who himself had been uh, processed under a Rhodes Scholar uh, called William Yandall Elliott, who had operated out of Harvard um, since the since the 40s. And Kissinger with George Schultz, uh, who had been working with Bechtel, had already uh, been setting the stage for a, a new type of structure where the U.S. would become a consumer cult. We would create a new type of system of values that would justify the export of our heavy industries, our manufacturing from North America to sweatshops and cheap labor markets who would then do the work but remain poor forever um, in the global south mostly. And so that was really designed with the, there was, there was some honey that was put on top of that saying, you're going to make a lot of money that way, you know? So that that's what got a lot of people to agree with this idea that we'll make money, uh, easy money, and we'll deregulate the banking system. We'll, we'll get rid of protective tariffs. We're going to allow the dollar to, to break away from the fixed exchange rate that had animated the world economy from 1945 until 71. And instead of having a fixed exchange rate based upon the gold reserve, we're going to have it now tied to what well what gives value to, to the US dollar now it will be the the oil spot markets the international commodities trading markets uh so basically whatever sp speculators want to believe the value of your currency will be will be what causes the currency to have value not what your nation is doing to benefit people or build things that's no longer that's the old wisdom we're going to we're going to put that in the trash now the only way capitalism has viability is if the monetary system is tied to the productive uh, the measurably productive forces of society that benefit life, that sustain infrastructure, that sustain life, right? So that way, if you're if you have more money in the in the pre 1971 system, the logic was if you have more money in the system, it has to be justified by an increase of measurable productivity, agro agro industrial productivity, new science, new new discoveries. You have to have that. When that was detached, so when the monetary logic was detached from the physical economy, and this is what's, I, I learned this first by looking at the writings of Lyndon LaRouche, that that's what introduced me to this mode of analysis, which has a lot of benefit. Um, at that point, you people go insane. You can justify the idea of having a consumer cult, a post-industrial society where you become ever more dependent upon cheap labor that has to stay poor to stay cheap, to feed your dollar stores, and you get addicted and addicted to that dependency while the poor countries get addicted to aid, monetary aid with no right to use that aid, whether from US aid, the IMF, the World Bank or other, they are not allowed to use it for their, their industrial growth. Thus, they have to stay poor. And systems of graft are created, right? Cultures of corruption are created as part of a global infrastructure that then feeds into all of the other poisons of the system of society, uh, the financing of, of the drug trade that then is processed through the offshore Cayman Island banks that are themselves overseen by the city of London, which has always been the center of command internationally of the financial sector with its outpost in Wall Street. That has always been the case. Uh, the financing of terrorist operations, which really sprang up under the trilateral commission of Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, co-ran by Henry Kissinger, that then was, you know, got underway in the late 70s, early 80s to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan, but it sprang up and it continued um, to the point of, you know, the Western sponsoring of, of these radical groups to overthrow governments you don't like in Iraq or Libya or Syria or beyond. George Soros played a role in that. He played a role also with Lord Malik Brown in, uh, in overthrowing a, a Filipino government in the late 80s as well, um, using Smartmatic voting fraud technologies when Coriano, uh, 
Aquino was was installed in there. Um, again, overseen by the same institutions. Mark Malik Brown, Aquino's um, personal handler, who was writing her speeches and and managing the the psyops that became uh, her fake win and the people's movement, which was never a people's movement. Uh, that same guy is the same guy who was behind the uh, the overthrow of Donald Trump in 2020 under the same type of Dominion Smartmatic operating system uh, that worked with George Soros. And, and so it's the same complex. And people often make the mistake of saying, oh, it's a Soros conspiracy. It's a Malik Brown conspiracy. And it's like, no, there's something above that, that these guys are all being used as pawns or to advance on a great game. And it's when you look at it from that standpoint that you could see the weaknesses in the system too, which is very beneficial. Thank you so much. I'll pass it on to Roy. That my Filipino people, my family especially, loves listening to you, Matthew. Great. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Matthew. Hi. We just mentioned Trump. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, I remember when the financial crisis around two thousand and eight like Canada was like everybody was looking at Trudeau as if you know great leader and loads of people were traveling there I could kind of see it I saw a few oil deals that he was doing the pipeline and things like that so I I knew it was kind of what you see is not what you get and I think it's the same with Trump there's so many people that are actually putting their faith in Trump and they're thinking he's going to be the savior when when you see he was bailed out by the Rothschilds the amount of bankruptcies the amount of people he's harmed just curious on your thoughts on that one. Well, I think that um, I followed that very closely. I, I do not. I think that they really, really did want to have Hillary win. Like that was not a desirous thing that they, that uh, Trump won. They really put all of their eggs in the Hillary basket. I know that that that's a fact. Hillary was supposed to win that. Um, and in that sense, it's it's useful because a lot of people, they disempower themselves by thinking that everything the oligarchy wants, it gets. And they, they, they miss out on all of this interesting nuance in history where the oligarchy often will uh, try to do something that blows up in its own face or there's creative uh, institutions or organization in various parts of the world that flank them. Um, I Trump definitely is over, I think, I personally think I agree that he is over-celebrated as being this great absolute savior character, a messiah figure. I, I think that that is a mistake to do that. I, I see him as a highly flawed person um, with questionable associations uh, throughout his, his business dealings in life. I do see that as well. But when I look at what he did, and I, I judge the man primarily by what he does in life as an individual or as a policymaker, especially as a statesman, because uh, he says ugly things too. Um, and he's got, you know, uh, again, associations that he negotiates with um, that I don't like. But when I look at what he does, what his policies were, I do see them as being incompatible and even completely disruptive to the overarching new world order agenda on a variety of levels. Um, the list goes, is, is quite a large list. Um, I could name a few things, but it, I, I don't think it matters so much the individual elements right now. But I do see him as a disruptive force. I do think that when I looked at the people who ran things like the Council on Foreign Relations, and I, I read the foreign policy um, uh, editorials by these various freaks, they were enraged the whole time as this, they, they hated Trump. They, they worked on creating Russiagate to, to try to undermine and undo the, uh, the effects of the election of 2016. Russiagate was always a hoax. They were obsessed with getting rid of Trump, of ousting him by impeachment, by, by everything. Um, and 
I think that the detachment of things like the CIA, he did work to just like pull all of a bunch of, it's like going up to a, a machine and just pulling out a bunch of stuff from the machine, right? Like um, he detached the CIA from uh, its operational uh, features in the US military. He defunded the National Endowment for Democracy across Hong Kong, Ukraine, all sorts of places. He freaked out a lot of the, the globalists in that sense. He canceled uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was an attack on China uh, and, a, and a, a giveaway of, cor of national power to corporations. I mean, there's so many things in that sense that were useful, even though he said ugly things and had ugly associations. Um, and I don't know what type of structures exactly. And you're, when, I'm, when I'm in an armchair, you know, just sitting in my comfortable study here, analyzing things, it's, it, it's easy to pass judgment and, and not appreciate the actual power structures that do really exist, that are very powerful, that can kill you. If you're literally on the inside making policy, right, you're in the corridors. Um, it's a different world. And I know people who didn't handle it well, who maybe were a little bit too hot-headed, like John F. Kennedy, it's a miracle that he stayed alive for a thousand days. But um, I think he was he was not as savvy or not will, as, you know, as he could have been that could have kept, maybe kept them alive a little bit, a lot longer. Um, it played a little bit more of a long, longer patient game. Then again, it's easy. To, again, it, it, we have to be careful when we pass judgment. Um, yeah. well, makes, makes sense. Yeah. All that to say, yeah, I mean, the uh, Trump does represent a certain populist voice that doesn't fit with the overarching depopulation anti-nation state agenda. Um, and I do see his support base today being one of the last points of hope for the usa if it's going to there was a, it suffered a huge blow with the election of the uh the the shadow called biden um <laughs> a huge blow um and so yeah there's there's hundreds of thousands of people who have still showed up to these various trump rallies overall who are rejecting the great reset ethic they have a tendency to fall into the cold war narratives that have been placed there by people like steve bannon and others who are you know, Western intelligence operatives, in my view, um, to redirect the the uh, people's sense of the cause of their problems from being the Anglo-American bankers and the, you know, the intelligence agencies that are actually shaping their their slaughter. And they tr they're trying to work to reframe the narrative to all make it sound like, no, Russia or China or Venezuela or Iran, those are the real bad guys behind destroying your values in your life. It's not really, don't look, don't look at the man behind the iron, the, behind the, the curtain. Um, so there, there's a susceptibility to fall into that Cold War um, hysteria. Um, that's a problem, but but there's there's resistance um, on that level. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't have a full, full-blown crystallized answer no, no. for you on that. No, no, no. It's yeah. uh, interesting. And um, like, obviously, you, you've written the books. So I can see you're an avid reader by the beautiful library behind you. Um, what what I found because I actually wrote a book and I was planning on releasing it and I was told don't I'd be whacked because it was containing too much information and I said people are after waking up now I'll I'll kind of get it out no and all the links that I had were gone like stuff that I was given reference to and I've mm -hmm. talked to a lot of people and they've said the same they've noticed that but another thing that I've noticed I like I read a hundred plus books a year like. The history books were created by the actual winners and it's very hard to actually decipher and sometimes i'll get the information by reading 10 books and you kind of put it together yourself just curious how it is for you 
I've encountered the same thing. Uh, I've gone to my articles that I've written in 2019. My wife, who's also a writer, has observed the same thing. We've we've we try to hyperlink as much as possible to source documentation when we write articles. Um, and yeah, when when I want to maybe you know revitalize an article, like republish it, um, I'll check out the links, and I'm I'm usually 40 to 50 percent of the links are now taking you to pages that no longer exist. So there is a scrubbing of the internet. Um, I, I do see that as well. Um, I have found great value in certain websites called archive.org, which every researcher I, that I know uses where they've just scanned every book that is available. However, when you look at the, uh, I recently looked at the biography of the founder of, of archive.org, which also runs the Wayback Machine, by the way, which is a good, again, a useful tool that takes snapshots of the, of the internet. So you could see what a website used to say in 2007, if to, if if it was scrubbed, you could see that. Now, the, the founder is a shady character who himself is a self-professed futurist, kind of a transhumanist character with some very bad philosophy of, of AI and uh, governance. So I think that this partially is a bit of a, 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 a setup for a new burning of a modern library of Alexandria, where we lost so much knowledge. We don't even know the causes of who and who or what burned it down, but we do know there was a lot there. Now, today, a lot of the books that, that you see behind me, and, and I mean, I've got many other bookshelves full of wonderful books. A lot of them came from um, just having somebody call me up and, and say, look, this library um, in town is throwing away books. This school's library is throwing away books. Now, come and get them. Um, so I, I picked up, I, I made out like a bandit. But I mean, the collected work of Lincoln. I have the collected works of Lincoln, which a, a major university was just throwing in the garbage. I have the collected works of Erasmus, like 18 volumes being thrown in the garbage. Um, so they, they're really trying, th their logic, I think, is is that, well, look, it's all scanned, it's all online. We don't need to have hard copies that take up space. It's obsolete white dead European males anyway. Um, and, uh, and how easy would it be to just simply turn off archive.org at some opportune moment, right? Where all of a sudden, you know, lights go out. So, and, and how many uh, copies of Benjamin Franklin's books over there uh, are, are not going to be available to uh, researchers in the future who might want to read original writings. So I, I, I do encourage people, and, and that's why on the Rising Tide Foundation website, my wife and I set up a, an online library of Alexandria where we try to host, upload as many original books and documentations and letters and writings of various important authors from ancient times to the present. We have several hundred authors. Uh, that you people could just click on any name in alphabetical order and just get as many books of quality that we could find or writings um, just to try to preserve some of this. But again, I mean, our website is still being hosted on a server and it's not my server. <laughs> um, so it's it's a serious danger, I believe. Um, I'm, I'm happy that Russia, I've, there's a Russian publishing house called the uh, Nasha Zavtra, which agreed to, um, they requested to translate our um, Clash of the Two Americas, Volume 1 and Volume 2, into Russian. So I'm happy that that's going to be available on the other side of the Iron Curtain, where they seem to want to preserve original writings a lot more. Um, so in that sense, good. I, I mean, China as well is going through a, a Confucian renaissance right now. Uh, you know, there there's really just a, a complete... If you look at, like, Chinese pop culture and movies that are being, like, you know, promoted... It's they're celebrating the life of Confucius, the life of Lao Tzu, the life of I mean, it's really something you don't see anywhere in our culture um, of. And they're encouraging young people to read the Analects, read uh, Mencius. Re, I mean, and, and, and really think about 
all of these things in a, in a more make i've heard more. in tiktok as well that in china they're rewarding you to actually do stuff educational and it shuts off at something like 10 30 whereas in the rest of the world it's like do stupid dances and that's what's getting rewarded yeah exactly exactly that's that's like you know i'm not i i don't like behaviorism or social credit but if you're gonna do it do it that way you know? <laughs> like don't let kids play more than three hours of violent video games I, I don't think they should be allowed to play any violent video games personally and, and i'm called an authoritarian for saying that but i think that they're designed as uh they were designed by the military industrial complex with the with the effect of turning weaponizing our own yup our young that's why a lot of these games are there. They're not there because they just organically came to supply a demand. They came, it's like the drugs. They didn't just organically come about because we had a demand for drugs. No, these are top-down controlled operations to create a spiritual, psychological, or physical and physical poison to destroy us and have, our, have us destroy ourselves the same way the British ran the opium trade to, to destroy China in the 19th century. That's what these these current violent video games are. And the fact that Xi Jinping came out and just said, no, you, you can't let kids under the age of whatever, 17, play more than three hours of video gaming per week. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And like I found it strange even like years ago, Grand Theft Auto, you know, where you're running people down, you've prostitution, just shooting. It's like, how is this normal? And I mean, if you go into the, like the visualization, how people think and everything, you can't, like a child doesn't know the difference and what they're dreaming and everything. And like a lot of the crimes that are happening, you know, who's to know that it hasn't been well, from... To make something happen physically, you have to be able to imagine it. Most things are so unnatural that the mind rejects them. So by by conditioning people to let their mental space widen to embrace killing innocent people in Grand Theft Auto or whatever first-person shooter games, that just creates, or even a lot of the, the movies that we're induced to watch that are programmed for us as dystopic films on Netflix, you know, or, or uh, Amazon Prime. These are these are done with scenarios to get our minds to our imagination to create possibilities, which then we will be more inclined to either just simply adapt to passively or some people will be even induced to uh, become active agencies for that. They would never have never have allowed themselves to do if their their basic human faculties had been permitted to remain intact properly. You know, how many people are, are wanting now to romantically join intelligence agencies of the CIA because they're being given so many heroic CIA scenarios funded by the CIA from Hollywood that are painting uh, a heroic image or like the Kingsman movie. You know, my wife and I just watched uh, the Kingsman movie uh, part three. And yeah, you know, you like this is targeting. It's a recruitment tool to target young, malleable people who want to have a purpose in their life, who now want to become part of uh you know, these these clandestine operations, which they don't even realize what they're going to be used for. Exactly, exactly. Just before I pass you over to Hartman, I, I know we before we record, we were talking about like the censorship. And I mean, I've been removed from uh, YouTube and even just recently, two weeks ago, Linktree just removed me without even telling me. And I've had so many different things to just... I just laugh at it now at this stage. I don't let it bother me. But uh, like you mentioned, yeah, you have your website and everything. Like what can people do to actually protect themselves from this? Because, yeah, we've got BitChute, we've got Rumble and different things. But like the, the fair is they turn off the switch for the, the, the domains and everything kind of goes down overnight. I mean, there's we're in new territory, you know. I I've got to say, I don't have simple answers for some of the tactical uh, questions regarding, like, how, you know, 
how do we go through the coming storm uh, in, in specific ways? I know in general, in a general sense, there is an explosion of homeschooling um, and networks of families who are pulling their kids out of school for obvious reason and, and uh, working together to shape more integrative human curriculum for their children to pass down the prop. Because we have to think now, I think, both on a practical level, yes, we have to keep ourselves and our families and loved ones in as, as safe a, a condition as possible going into the calming storm, which is going to, I mean, you know, the maelstrom is in the West, at least it's uh, it's got a lot of nasty scenarios in terms of the controlled banking system meltdown, the, the, the destruction of supply chains, other things, the move towards authoritarianism. Um, these are all very dangerous things. Um, so yes, obviously we have to think about ways and I'm not a specialist on offering that type of advice so much. I know that there are things that people can certainly do to, uh, Again, the homeschooling thing is very important and working with other like-minded families around, you know, uh, your community and other parts of your nation and other nations to share what works, what doesn't work at helping to bring up uh, young citizens. Um, the idea of uh, thinking on a much longer term about like, what, what am I giving back after my life? That's a very important shifting of the mindset to get into because, look, people like um, Dante Alighieri, here's a quick case study, right? Dante Alighieri was able to accomplish quite a bit when he had political power. He had one of the highest elected off, or appointed offices in Florence during a strategic time in the 13th century. He was like the top dog. Now, Dante was a brilliant, brilliant guy who understood the nature of the deep state of his day. And there was a deep state in the 13th century too. It may have been called something different, but it was Venetian. Later on, Venice migrated and took control like a parasite of the British Isles, but that, that was still for later. At the time, the Venetian Empire was the center of a satanic uh, hive that had been trying to uh, get rid of any impulses towards creative and moral uh, natural law that was being maneuvered by uh, different people like Dante and his collaborators around uh, Europe at the time. Italy was a, a, a key point of that, of that battle. And at a certain point, um, he was, his plans were subverted. His, his collaborators, some of them were, were assassinated. He was um, out, ousted. There was a coup d'etat that ousted him from his position, that exiled him from his beloved uh, Florence. And he could not really ever go back to that type. So the political potential had disappeared to do what could have been done more quickly. That disappeared. So he had to, went through a bit of a crisis, but he had to shift gears, which he did, to think about the longer waves of history and to create um, a, a new cultural environment in which future uh, leaders could be uh, could come out of. Uh, he did this by by creating poetry that was of a high quality of, of classical excellence that united the Italian di dialects into one unified beautiful language. Um, he created battle plans in his Demonarchia for uh, the creation of the nation state and the idea of law being based not upon a king but around the consent of the governed and the well-being of the people not the well-being of the elite so he he crafted this he, he put this stuff out there and he put it into motion and he created institutions educational institutions that were below in many ways the radar of the oligarchy they weren't paying attention to these sorts of things um because and they, they underestimated their value because it took a couple of generations but this is exactly what people like leonardo da vinci came out of this poor, you know, this kid who was an orphan, you know, not from the blue bloods, 
um, who is who is able to tap into, who's given the means to tap into his full faculties of creative and scientific reasoning and love of God and love of nature and sharing of that, which allowed him to make pioneering discoveries in everything he touched. And he shared it. He wasn't alone. He was an excellent example, but he wasn't alone. There are many others. Um, and that's why you have such a density in the 1450s to 1500 period in Italy, especially of, of uh, paradigm shifting breakthroughs in medicine, astronomy, architecture, engineering, uh, statecraft, longevity of life increases, like so many things. And it has to do with this mind over matter thing. Um, the empire purely is a is a is a law of the jungle system. It, it wants to it, it values power based upon what you can do to impose your will onto the system and get the system to abide by your desires, even if your desires are perfectly irrational. Right. My, you know, basically their desire is ultimately to to not to be lazy. You know, they want to be like in their or they want to have the freedom to be in their orgies as long as they want in their in their castles untouched by the impure useless eaters who know their role as talking cows and do like whatever little productive work needed to uh supply well it's like Downton Abbey like if you listen watch the show Downton Abbey right where you have these uh these British lords and, and elites who just like live in their manners where like hundreds of people of servants just like live for them as like talking dogs <laughs> that's sort of what they they that's their ideal what they want as this perfect pristine state um it's irrational everybody should be allowed to be useful including the elites which you know they're not allowed to be useful that's <laughs> they're, they're told that that's 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 below you uh be a thinker and um but don't develop skills of anything of use so you know we're now in a situation where i would be more depressed if you didn't have major civilizational forces in on the earth today co-organized around Russia, I mean, in, like Russia, China, Iran, 140 other countries to varying degrees have jumped on board the Belt and Road Initiative and what's increasingly called the multipolar alliance, rejecting the destruction of sovereign nation states, rejecting the depopulation agenda. They have their own deep state penetration. They've got their own battles in China, their own battles in Russia, their own battles in Iran. With deep state operations, but they're doing they're doing battle, and the forces that don't want to self-sacrifice their ancient civilizations have made some serious victories. Whereas in our transatlantic sort of NATO cage, where we are unfortunately operating, um, those forces have been taken down, at least on the federal levels for the most part. We have non-linear expression of freedom movements from the people, which is great. And in the state level in the U.S., you see bastions of resistance that I think can spread in nonlinear ways. You see it somewhat in Europe, but Europe's a much more controlled environment in many ways. Um, but, if, you know, there, there's a lot of unknowns and things you can't predict in a linear way. So I'm we're in a process of high uncertainty. And when you have a, a lot of crisis, you have a lot of potential for change for good or for bad. I don't know what the effects are, are, are going to be now of what Russia has chosen to do by recognizing Eastern uh, Lugansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics, and then going in with a military operation to target the uh, the Nazi-infested operatives all over the Ukrainian Defense Forces. And there are actual Nazis. People just need to watch uh, Oliver Stone's uh, Ukraine on Fire. You get it on, on Vimeo. Um, it is, of you know, Biden and, and, and Victoria Newland and, and the other uh, Soros-affiliated operatives put Nazis in power. And, and even though Zelensky is not a Nazi, he is corrupt. And the defense forces of the Ukraine are integrated 
with these Azov battalions, Faboda, right sector, third generation neo-Nazi groups who have been carrying out genocide. That's being targeted, not civilian operations, but I don't know. I don't know what the effects are going to be of that, you know? It's going to be well, I think uh, Hartmund will know a lot more about uh, the Nazis that being from Germany. But so <laughs> I pass it. So thank you, Matthew. I'll pass you over to Hartmund. Sure. You're on the uh, Yeah. Matthew, it's a real pleasure to have you on the on the show because um uh yeah, I'm also involved in these things concerning especially concerning the let's say the um the chessboard black and white. Yeah, and the there's the one part like for example, like the NATO, the, the Western uh, Western Allies, and then the other, then the other side, the BRICS states, for example, yeah. And at the end, this whole war is only it's let's say is a question of a run concerning melting the currency. Yeah. So at the moment, it's uh, maybe it's a couple of maybe it's a couple of days, weeks, or yeah, I don't think I don't think months. Uh, so the the dollar will be melted completely. Well, yeah, I mean that's been built in. Um, uh, there is a controlled demolition of just like you can control the demolition of buildings uh, to induce or an excuse for war in a in a foreign country. You can also induce the demolition of a banking system under the condition that you can get the banking system to uh, become a bubble because bubbles pop and yeah. with. That's sort of what happened now over the past 40 years, especially the last 20 years. It really accelerated with Glass-Steagall having been removed in 1999 in the United States, uh, which was the separation between commercial and investment banking. Before that, I mean, there was you were still able to get around it, but you still overall had a wall where you couldn't, as an as a speculator, take people's savings or pensions and speculate with them. With the wall being removed, you created the too-big-to-fail institution, whereby... Uh, you could, I mean, derivatives contracts went from $70 trillion in 1999 to $750 trillion by the time the 2007 blowout happened as the first wave, where I, in my view, I think that that's where we really lost our economy. And, and since then, we've been in, a, in an, um, a, a, a bailout system for the past 14 years um, of just periodic bailouts, infusions of emergency capital to keep these banks from collapsing. But in reality, you're just putting blood into already dead zombies you're not changing anything structurally that would avert um, of an ultimate blowout of the, the system. So now the bubbles um, are much bigger even than they were in 2007. The physical economy, the means of supporting life has been reduced and atrophied even more. And so that ability to put the pinprick in, and in, in the case of 1929, we saw, we saw a small example of that in the United States. How was the Great Depression organized? They created a, a bubble economy in the, the roaring 20s of, of free trade and speculation that made easy money happen and flow for a few. And at a certain time, the there was a broker call loan on one single day that was called in. So there was a coordinated calling in of all of the, uh, the broker call loans. Brokers were taking loans to gamble that far exceeded their ability to pay. And they thought they would never be called in, but they were called in. And it was soon discovered, oh, they all had to default. And that created a chain reaction collapse, a deleveraging, right? And the people in the know who were on the JP Morgan preferred clients list, for example, like the uh, uh, the Prescott Bush and his family that was working for the pro-Nazi union banking corporation funding fascism and, and eugenics, they were able to sell short or sell early and then buy up for pennies on the dollar real estate, agricultural land, 
other other parts of the real economy. That's what they there was a big wealth transfer back then. And we're seeing sort of the same thing under Vanguard, BlackRock, other world economic form affiliated uh uh gobble you know gobbleized monsters just eating up the real economy um so there is a wealth transfer and people are are thinking oh wow i can sell my house for uh you know 10% 20% above real estate property values great they people are just giving me money for that i'll take the money meanwhile i mean the money's going to be worth toilet paper and you're going to lose your house and uh, who's going to own it right are the people who will, will allow those who are well behaved to rent in those things that will were formerly owned under the condition that they maintain good behavior according to the so-called self-professed elite so yeah they want that now the thing for me is that when i evaluate the system and i've been following this very closely i was talking you know i was recruited to uh helping out as a volunteer with the larouche movement into after a conversation i had in 2006 with a, a canadian representative and I, I listened and I read LaRouche's writings and I could see that he had been clearly describing the, the financial blowout for the right reasons that I just went through. He was talking about this as being foreseeable, avoidable under certain conditions. And I was like, wow, you can actually know that. And that that was a life changer, a life changer for me. Right. I'm like, you can actually know exactly why the system is designed to blow out by intention and by the physical economy of it. Um, and thus, you can act on it before it happens. That was very empowering. Um, today, the script is not being followed. So the New World Order script that they had been abiding by for decades has been going on per, pretty much the way they wanted it to, especially after the, dis the, the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, if they wanted buildings to fall, that fell. They wanted Iraq or Libya to, to burn, that burned. And all of a sudden, the script stopped working when Russia started. It, it basically was able to... to recover sufficiently from the destruction of Russia from the 1990s. It was a destruction of Russia. Um, but under Putin, there was a war against the deep state. It's still a current war, but he was able to, to sufficiently get them in their place. And for those who didn't want to get into their place, um, they were allowed to find sanctuary in Britain, which is where the majority of these Russian oligarchs are currently based or in prison. Some of them decided to just, you know, <laughs> go to prison. Um, and he was able to rehabilitate the destroyed tissue of Russia sufficiently such that they could then enter into blocking the regime change in Syria in 2015 and a variety of things working increasingly with China, integrating Russia with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the economic and security architecture of, of China that involves also India, Pakistan, Iran. Many other countries have been integrating on, on that level, including basket case countries like Turkey. Have been increasingly cooperating more and more with the Russian system since Turkey, and that's a whole other side discussion. Doesn't matter. Um, the, the problem yeah. is what I see is um, that of course they cannot um, follow their plan anymore, but at the moment they can use the Russians also this war in order to restructure the Western societies. Because, for example, the German Chancellor he said um, yesterday. Uh, North, Stream, North Stream 2 is over. So this means um, uh, scientists in Russia predicts that um, the price for gas will go up to $2,000. Yeah. And um, in that moment, you have a situation in the Western Europe which will be so catastrophic that we have to rechange ah, it. 
I know, no, I know. It, but this is the thing, right? Like originally, they wanted Russia, China, everybody to be in the in the same cage to be uh, self uh, destructed together, so that they could then control every the, the demolition that had every country in the building that would then be demolished. The thing is, a bunch of these countries decided to leave the building, and yeah. because of that, they have been not able. I think they would have wanted to have already blown out their economy earlier. And if if things had gone according to their script proper, the way they thought was proper, they we should have already had that that pinprick blow out the banking system. But um, things have changed now. Uh, the the geometry has changed, and so I think part of their fear is that if they blow out the system while the multipolar alliance is growing under a completely different operating system, completely different set of values defining the behavior of money, security arrangements, international cooperation. All of that is different from what we let we have in the West. So if they blow up the system now, while that other system is still thriving and growing, I think that they kind of intuit that many of those countries on the Titanic here will want to uh, use the excuse of the of the chaos of the crisis to join that other open system. And so that's why I think they've been obsessed with this idea of erecting absolute iron curtains, new walls cutting off all possible trade, economic, cultural, communications, media, everything, East and West, worse than even the Cold War. Because they want, they're like, okay, at this point, we can't destroy it directly like we've been trying to do. So at the very least, let's live to fight another day. Let's try to consolidate the, the transatlantic now, pull the plug on that, try to control that, that blowout, and figure out some way to destabilize the, the Eurasian powers somehow. Um, but I think they screwed up because they, they they have now put all of their eggs into a basket of self-destruction. Like, how are they going to fight a system of Euro Eurasia, which is actually creating, like China just built 40,000 kilometers, 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in like, what, 15 years. Germany got rid of all of its high-speed rail. It, it invented it, didn't even build it. And the West has none, zero in, in I mean, the West. The U.S. and Canada has pretty much zero. We can't build anything. We can't build a bus station without like going through environmental protection hoops. And, you know, you have to wait eight years to get approval to build a bus stop that costs you 20 times more than you estimated. Um, they could build a, you know, a 12 mile bridge um, in China in like a few months. They could build a high rise in 24 hours. You see these stop motion things. Um, so they're, they're, how are you going to deal with that type of thing when you're committed to uh, mediocrity and dest destruction? I don't yeah, think but the question is, one moment, sorry for interrupting yeah. you, but the question is, China is, I thought, the prototype of all that. For example, uh, Russia um, made, a, made a, a, a study or a, a prediction that Germany could be again a very empower, a very powerful country oh, because of the connection to China. Yes, and we I here in Germany, know. we work here. Let's say okay. we are the front line of China. Sorry, I just realized I don't want to escape your question because it's an important question. It's one o'clock, and I have an interview at one o'clock. Okay, now, sorry. Ah, no, I'm sorry. This is such an important question. Okay, oh, I'm going to send out. A, a series of studies I've written, okay? China, I'll just say this quickly. Um, they, when, when you hear Henry Kissinger or Justin Trudeau or anybody talking about uh, how great China is, they're talking about social credit, centralized control, and they love that. They love that stuff. 
um, they don't like the ability for the Chinese government to um, take down World Economic Forum trustees like Jack Ma, uh, which China has done. They they don't. No, I don't. I my interview starts now. Um, sorry. Um, they they don't like China's ability to uh, expel George Soros. George Soros has not been allowed to enter China since 1989, and his open societies have been banned for a long time for a reason. I've written about that. Uh, they don't like their ability to use national credit with state banks to build things. They want that all to be private. So China's kept control of their their national banks. So they they there's a whole part of this that that is being missed. Um, hello. Hi. I I just realized it's 103. I'm gonna be on in uh, 30 seconds. All right, thank you. Bye. I'm so sorry. I have to run to another interview. It's live on, on TNT radio. Uh, but I'll send you an email with a bunch of uh, links of work that I've done on this very important topic of the Chinese deep state and their own battles with their deep state and also the Russian deep state. It's going to be part of a future book I'm working on. Um, wow. I'll send that to you, well, okay? All right. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. You. It was a real pleasure. Okay. I hope to talk yeah. to you again. Yes, me too. Okay, bye, guys. Thank you, Matthew. You. Bye -bye. Ciao. And then... And thank you to all of you who view this and thank you and share this for anyone who resonates. Just remember, no matter how big the problem is now, we are more massive than that, okay? So we come from source consciousness, so we can do it. We could change our course. And to Matthew, thank you again. And to Roy and to Hartmut and to everyone out there, please share this. Thank you. Thank you.